So welcome online. Welcome to our podcast listeners. Welcome to everybody in the room. Welcome to everybody who will listen to this maybe years from now. We're glad you join us. And this is lesson number four in our systematic theology course. And tonight we're going to continue with bibliology. And we're going to study specifically hermeneutics or Bible interpretation. So let's go ahead and pray together and we'll go ahead and start. Lord, we are grateful that you went to the effort to have the scriptures written for us, to have them copied for us carefully, to have them preserved for us, and to have them translated in such a wonderful way for those of us, especially who speak English. Lord, we just thank you for what we've learned about that, and we pray that we would be good students of your word, that you'd show us how to understand it as we read it, to interpret it, to apply it to our lives. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight, and he would use me for his glory and help us be blessed and drawn closer to you because we've been here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to review quickly, and since we got the chart still up here, nobody erased it, I might as well start there. I remind you that God wanted to go from his mind to the mind and acts of you and me. And so for God to get his thoughts into our mind, so then we would know what he wants us to do and how to act, one of the things he did is he gave us the scriptures, and we have this chain diagram, and every link is important. And the first link is the unbreakable, flawless link of revelation, inspiration. And revelation is God giving the word, and inspiration is he inspired then men to write his word accurately and without error. So the Bible was inerrant, without error, as it was originally written. And then these original documents that were written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 40 generations had to be transmitted. And so they were copied by people. And so that's the second link. And that one is not flawless, but it's really, really strong. And we saw that, that the Jewish scribes are very careful how they copied the scriptures, and in the New Testament, we have so many manuscripts, uh, 5,600-plus Greek manuscripts and 24,000-plus manuscripts of other languages of the New Testament that we can compare those, and we can see that we have a very accurate copy. And the process of studying all the documents under transmission to see what is there and what isn't there and what should be there and what someone might have added is called textual criticism. And last week I gave you a couple sheets on that. If you had a chance to read them, you discovered some things about textual criticism, the process of looking at manuscripts and determining what the original said. And then the next link is translation because these were in Greek and Hebrew and maybe some Aramaic, and most of us don't speak those languages, so we need them translated into our own language. And so that link gets a little bit weaker because it's dependent on the translators. And we have many different translations in English, up to 800, someone has said, and we are very fortunate that we can compare all these English translations. So as an English reader of the Bible, we are very blessed to know that we have a very accurate translation of what the original said. The next two links involve what we're going to be talking about tonight and next week, Bible interpretation. It's not enough just to have the Bible. You have to observe what's there. That's in the next link. And then you have to interpret what it says. And so that's the process of biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation that we'll be talking about. And if you don't do this well, then you have not gone from the mind of God to your mind and your acts correctly. You have to know what God was thinking, what he was saying, and that involves observing what he said and interpreting it accurately. And then the last link on the chain is application. We want to make sure we apply what we have now learned. So tonight, we're going to be talking about this second-to-last link, which has to do with observing the text and then interpreting the text. So that brings us tonight, in your notes, it should be page 19, Roman numeral 6, hermeneutics. And if you see there on page 19, hermeneutics, we have a, a parenthesis there, and it says hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. 
It's a science because there are certain rules that we follow as we interpret the scriptures, certain guidelines that we use. So that's a science. It has rules. It has things that we follow. It's an art because not everybody does it as well as someone else. <laughs> so there's a little bit of skill, a little bit of art to it, a um, little bit of your effort to make sure that you do it correctly. So the next part, the next paragraph points out on your notes there, there are two prevalent methods for Bible interpretation used today. And this is extremely important because this will determine how you interpret the scriptures, especially when you come to books like Daniel and Revelation and other prophetic books. So there are two prevalent methods for Bible interpretation used today, resulting in significant differences in interpretation, especially when it comes to, and this is very significant, Israel and the church. Israel in the church, and the Bible's prophecies regarding the end times, the end times. So at that very outset, you need to understand how someone is choosing to interpret Scripture. And like I said, there are two primary methods, and depending on which method you use, you're going to end up someplace completely differently at the end of your study, because it depends on where you started. And one of the big differences has to do with how you interpret prophetic scripture. And so that affects your view of end times and your view of Israel. And does Israel have a future or not? What about the church and those kinds of things? So the two methods, looking at your notes there, one method is called the literal method of interpretation. The literal method of interpretation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. The other method includes the use of allegory or spiritualization. Allegory or spiritualization. Those who hold the second position often don't like to be told that they're using allegory. Uh, they see that as a pejorative description, even though that's what they're doing, and that's really the history of where that interpretation comes from. They prefer to say they're spiritualizing the text. And we'll talk a lot more about that. But you need to understand, one method says we interpret the Bible literally. The other method uses literal plus allegory or spiritualization, puts it together. Um, you might like to know that the president of our denomination, Dr. J John Stumbo, uh, presently is asking our entire denomination to consider changing our hermeneutic. In other words, to go from holding a literal interpretation of Scripture to allowing people that serve as pastors and ordained in our denomination to hold this second position of Bible interpretation. And that's a huge shift, and it's a two-year process for him to present it and for us to vote on it um, at National Council and things like that. And you'll be seeing as you go through the course why this one little thing is hugely significant. And so, you know, you just need to know that our denomination is actually um, going to be debating this next year about whether we will change our hermeneutic, our way of interpreting scriptures. Yeah. Does every CMA pastor get a vote? Um, we will be given a chance, I think, to vote. Yes. I, I'll see how it works. But, yeah, that's a good question. Um, but there will be some debating for two years. And then I don't know if it's done democratically. I think it is. And then you can also have people from each church can have delegates that come and they vote as well. So good question. Um, so I have some quotes here. Most of the quotes are from people who hold the literal method of interpretation. Some of the quotes or one of the quotes is from somebody who holds the other method. I, I tried to be as fair as I could, um, but I am biased. So I'll just mention that. I'm biased toward what I believe is correct, obviously. So if you look at your notes, author and former Dallas Theological Seminary professor, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, explains that, by the way, he was one of my professors when I was at Dallas. He explains, while many diverse methods of interpreting the scriptures have been propounded during the course of the history of interpretation, today there are but two methods of interpretation which have a vital effect on eschatology. And eschatology, as I said, is the study of last things. And one method is the allegorical method, and the other one, the grammatical historical method. 
And the literal method is generally held to be synonymous with grammatical historical method. So when you hear the literal method, it's also called the grammatical historical method, and you'll find out why in just a moment. Another theologian, Dr. Charles Rari, who also happened to have been one of my professors at Dallas, writes this, dispensationalists, and if you don't know what a dispensationalist is, uh, just look at me, I'm a dispensationalist, and we will talk about more of what that is when we get toward eschatology, because dispensationalists interpret prophetic scripture differently than people who are called covenant theologians. And that's because covenant theologians use the allegorical or spiritualizing method of interpreting prophetic scripture. The dispensationalist uses the literal method. That's why you will, I doubt you will ever hear a prophetic conference being given at a Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church, Catholic church, a Greek Orthodox church, because they interpret the prophecies allegorically or spiritually, and they, ha they don't come up with a system. There's no set agreement among people who hold that view of how the things are going to end. Because when you can allegorize or spiritualize, as we'll see, it's the interpreter who becomes the authority, not the scripture. Now, again, I'm biased, so if you hear someone who has a different view, make sure you hear their view of it. But my understanding is they don't have a system for end times. Where a dispensationalist is someone, and we'll see this a little bit later tonight, believes in time periods or dispensations throughout history, believes they're in a literal interpretation of Scripture, and dispensationalists have a system for end times. We all generally agree that these events are going to happen. You may not agree in all the specific details that are maybe not clear, but we do agree in the main events, that there really is a rapture of the church. There really is a seven-year tribulation. There really is a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. There really is a fulfillment to the nation of Israel of all the promises God made to David and to Abraham. Those are literal. But if you're a covenant theologian who holds to the allegorical or spiritualizing method of interpretation, you don't believe those things or you believe differently than that. I don't want to say what you believe, but you definitely don't believe those things are fulfilled literally. So Dr. Pentecost then points out that perhaps one of the strongest evidences for the literal method is the use the New Testament makes of the Old Testament. When the Old Testament is used in the New, it is used only in a literal sense. When one need only to study the prophecies which were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ in his life, his ministry, and his death to establish that fact. And the next sentence is extremely important. No prophecy which has been completely fulfilled has been fulfilled in any way but literally. And so what Dr. Pentecost is saying here, and I would agree with him, is that you look at any prophecy that the Old Testament made that has been fulfilled, it was fulfilled literally. Well, why would you then say prophecies that are not, have not been fulfilled will not be fulfilled literally? But the allegorical method says they're not going to be fulfilled literally. They're going to spiritualize or allegorical. But if you're consistent, you would have to say they will be literal. Allegorism, writes theologian Bernard Ram, is the method of interpreting a literary text that regards the literal sense as the vehicle for a secondary more spiritual and more profound sense. And then theologian Oswald Alice is an amillennialist. An amillennialist not only is hard to say, but ah means no, and millennial means thousand years. So an amillennialist means someone who does not believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, as mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20, and mentioned without the number thousand years throughout the Old Testament, Christ's future reign is mentioned, but just not with the thousand years. So a millennialist is someone who does not use the literal method of interpretation in every aspect. They use it in some aspects. Other aspects, they spiritualize or use allegory. And he agrees with all the people above. Notice what he says. One of the most marked features of premillennialism, um, that's someone who holds to a literal biblical interpretation, that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, and he returns before that reign. And we'll talk about this when we get to eschatology. But one of the marked features of a literal interpretation in all its forms is the emphasis which it places on the literal interpretation of Scripture. So he agrees. 
It is the insistent claims of its advocates that only when interpreted literally is the Bible interpreted truly. And so here is someone who doesn't hold that position, but he's agreeing with those who do. And they, Dr. Rari, Dr. Pentagos, uh, Dr. Perry Alexander, <laughs> they denounce as spiritualizers or allegorizers those who do not interpret the Bible with the same degree of literalness as they do. So he would agree that that's how we describe it. Dr. Rari points out that spiritualizing then is the answer of the amillennialist to the problem of the interpretation of prophecy. It is the same as allegorizing, and this method of interpretation does not have a savory origin. Okay, so, I, that's, so let's find out the origin of an allegorical or spiritualizing method of Scripture. So first, just let me give you an example before we look at that, in case you're kind of, your head's spinning too, too fast. Um, the amillennialists will say, when the Bible talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ, a thousand me years means a long time. It doesn't mean a thousand years. And when it says Christ will reign, he's not reigning literally on earth, and this is where amillennialists do not agree with each other. Some say he's reigning right now in your heart. You're in the millennium, or the millennium's in you right now. This is it. Woohoo! Isn't that great? And others will say, oh, he's reigning in heaven right now. That's the millennial reign. Millennial, which is Latin for a thousand years, does not mean a thousand years. It just means a long period of time. And then when it says that, Christ, that Satan is bound during the millennial reign, Satan is bound right now, is what the millennial, uh, amillennialists will say. Christ has bound Satan, and Satan is bound right now. Well, he doesn't feel very bound to me, but they say he's bound. And by bound, I think they mean there's certain boundaries he can't cross. Okay? That's quite different than the literal idea that he's going to be bound and throw into a pit and chained there for a thousand years so he can't deceive the nations. And during those thousand years, there's no war because Satan is the one who incites all wars. And without Satan, there's no war. Okay? So, um, let's find out the origin of all this. Look at your notes. The allegorical method of interpretation in the church traces its origin back to a, name, a man named Origen. Isn't that easy? <laughs> origin is the origin. Now, origin is spelled with an I when it's not the man's name, and it has a final E there, origin, when it's the man's name. But the allegorical method of interpretation in the church traces its origin, with an I, back to a man named Origen, with an E. In an effort to harmonize the Mosaic law with Greek philosophy, Greek pagan philosophy, that is, he resorted to the allegorization of scriptures. So he was trying to see what the pagan Greeks were saying in their philosophy was also what Moses was saying. And to do that, he had to allegorize Moses and say, Moses didn't really mean this literally. He meant this, and it's an allegory, and this is what he meant. Well-known church historian, Philip Schaff. So he's, you, you'd hope he's a nonpartisan writer of history. He's a church historian, Philip Schaff, well-known, writes, Origen was the first to lay down in connection with the allegorical method of the Jewish um, Platonist Philo, a formal theory of interpretation. Origen was the exegetical oracle of the early church till his orthodoxy fell into disrepute. So, okay, I know it's late. I know it's history. I know it's a lot of information. We're going to get to some more interesting stuff, but I want you to have this as a foundation because if you don't understand this, then you might keep asking me all these questions as I go off on the literal method, okay? And you can go back and look at this more in depth later. But the thing to understand is the allegorical method had a very early origin in the church, and it started with a man named Origen. Now, Dr. Charles Feinberg, <clears throat> who, his son was one of my professors. I don't think Charles Feinberg was. He was too hard a professor, so I think I skipped him. Um, Dr. Charles Feinberg writes, it can be shown that the reason the early church was premillennial was traceable to its interpretation of the word in a literal manner. Whereas the cause of the departure from this view in later centuries of the history of the church is directly attributed to a change in method of interpretation beginning with origin in particular. 
So he's saying the same thing. He says the early church held the literal method of interpretation, which led them to being pre-millennial. They believed in a literal thousand years reign of Christ, and pre means Christ comes back before he does his reign, which makes sense, okay? And the early church believed that. That's historic. So anybody who tells you they didn't believe that, you can trace it historically. The early church, for at least the first two or three centuries, were pre-millennial. But what happened was the next man, Augustine, or Augustine, if you prefer, who was born in 354 AD, is considered one of the most influential theologians in all of church history. He adopted Origen's method of allegorical interpretation and became the prevailing method of biblical interpretation for centuries to come. Augustine, or Augustine, as he's also called, was a premillennialist early in life. And then he changed because he didn't like the people who held that view. <laughs> so then he became an allegorist, and he is the one that introduced that to the church. And since he's a leading theologian in the Catholic Church, that's how it was spread. Dr. Ryrie writes that amillennialism, the teaching that there's no literal reign of Christ on earth for a millennium or a thousand years, was born out of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that the church is the kingdom and therefore is reigning or should be reigning now. It had its origin in the teachings of Augustine, who taught that the millennium is to be interpreted spiritually as fulfilled in the church. And so this allegorical method of interpretation takes all the promises given to the nation of Israel through Abraham and David and says they're no longer going to be fulfilled literally. That Israel does not get the promised land. Christ does not set up his throne. David is not a co-reigner for a thousand years. You do not co-reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Satan is not literally bound during that time. They teach that all that is going to be fulfilled in a spiritual sense and that all the physical promises to Israel are now being fulfilled spiritually in the church. So they see the church in the Old Testament. They don't see the church as being born in Acts 2 at the coming of the Holy Spirit when the church was born. So they have a very different view. And so that's why it can be confusing when you hear people preach and they see the church in the Old Testament. Well, that's because they don't take the scriptures totally literally. And that's why they may have a different view about the nation of Israel. Those who take a literal view of scripture are normally very pro-Israel, and they believe Israel still has a future, as I do, of course. Uh, next in your notes, referring to the allegorical method of interpretation, Dr. Pentecost concludes. Here it is. Here's the conclusion. This is important. Thus, the great dangers inherent in this system are that it takes away the authority of Scripture and leaves us without any basis on which interpretations may be tested. Because how do I know your spiritualization is right and mine is wrong, or vice versa? He also says it reduced, that should be reduces, Scripture to what seems reasonable to the interpreter, and as a result makes true interpretation of Scripture impossible. Now, that's a biased view from someone who holds a literal view of interpretation. So if you hold the other view, you might come to a different conclusion, but I would agree with Dr. Pentecost on that. Okay, so the last line of page 20, and then we'll get into some even more stimulating things. <laughs> In this class, we will be using the literal method of interpretation. We will be using the literal method of interpretation. And just so we're clear, the other view interprets some scripture literally and other scripture allegorically. And that's why people hold this view. Um, they think, um, like um, Tim Keller, for instance, he doesn't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. He thinks that's allegorical, that chapter 1 is allegorical, and that the creation is allegorical. That it's not a literal 7 days, 24-hour days, and literal Adam and Eve. Allegorizes it. Well, where do you stop? If you start allegorizing the, the first chapter of the Bible, how do you know that all the other things are not allegories? So you can be a great pastor, you can be a great Christian, you can be a great writer, you can be a very spirit-filled person, but if you have a different method of an interpretation, you're going to come up with different conclusions than someone who holds the literal method of interpretation. Well, when it comes to Bible interpretation on page 21, 
there are two mandatory conditions that you need to have. Two mandatory conditions. And I'd like to read those to you in 1 Corinthians. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And as you're probably aware, the Apostle Paul didn't put the chapter divisions in, nor did he put the verse divisions. So those were just put there to help us find our way around uh, much later after Paul wrote them. So sometimes we have to read through the chapter division to get a whole thought, which is the case here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It's going to tell us some conditions for understanding Scripture. It says in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, but a natural man, okay, so this is someone who does not have the Holy Spirit, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, or you can almost say understood. So he's saying the natural or the unsaved man doesn't really understand the scriptures, doesn't understand spiritual things because you need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to understand spiritual things. And then it says, verse 15, but he who is spiritual, and spiritual doesn't just mean you go, oh, I feel so spiritual. You know, that's not spiritual. Spiritual means someone who is filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to truly be spiritual. So one who is spiritual appraises or understands all things, yet he himself is appraised or understood by no man. For who has the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? And then it says, we have the mind of Christ. You are brilliant if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior because it says you have the mind of Christ. Because remember, we have the mind of God trying to go to the mind of man through the Scriptures. And one thing this diagram doesn't show is the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. And we have the Holy Spirit, so we need to have the Holy Spirit. He's our, the Holy Spirit is our um, Bible study helper so that he doesn't make Bible study unnecessary. He makes Bible study efficient and productive. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not saved, you're going to have trouble understanding the Scripture. So the first requirement we see here, looking at your notes, to understand Scripture, you must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to understand the Scriptures more than just as historical book, if you want the real spiritual sense of it, if you want to feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you have to be a spiritual person. You have to be born again. But the next thing we go on to say, see in chapter 3, verse 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men. So he's writing to Christians, but he's saying you don't act like people filled with the Spirit. But I'm writing to you as men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, now, even now you're not able, yet able. And so he's saying you are baby Christians. You haven't matured. Because they're called fleshly here, and the Latin word for flesh, flesh is carne, sometimes they're called carnal Christians, fleshly Christians. And so you can have people who have been in the church all their life, and they go, I've been in the church all my life. Well, so? I mean, how long have you been filled with the Holy Spirit in the church? That's the key. Are you walking filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in the Lord? And he says, you people, you're babes. You're carnal. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You couldn't handle the word of God because you weren't. And here's our second requirement. You must be spirit-filled. You must be spirit-filled. So the first thing is you need to be born again. You need to be a Christian. But you need to be a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you've been at this church any time, you've started to hear this acronym, which is helpful for us to keep in mind when we're talking about filling with the Holy Spirit. And it's an acronym that spells out the word Day, so it makes it easy to remember. D A Y. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing is it's something you must desire. You have to want the Holy Spirit to, to fill you, to guide you. Some people used to use the phrase and still do uh, spirit controlled. I, tr I like to stay away from the word controlled because that makes it sound like you're a robot and you have no choice. That, 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 you know. But spirit filled has the idea that you're asking the Holy Spirit to fill you, to guide you, to lead you, to teach you. But you have to want that. He's not going to make you be filled with the Holy Spirit if you don't want to be. He's not going to make you follow his lead. And so you desire it and ask him. 
Say, Lord, I, I, I want to be filled. And if, if your relationship with God has been strained because of sin, you somewhere along this point, it's a good idea to confess that sin and, and get right with the Lord and say, Lord, I've been following my own fleshly way. Forgive me. I want to follow the Holy Spirit. Ask, and then yield to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to guide you. He's going to tell you in that often quiet voice what he wants you to do. And that's a conscience that you have. And even beyond your conscience, he leads you. Sometimes you actually hear a word, or he might give you a dream, or he might just have circumstances happen, and you go, okay, I need to do that. And I find that when you have a good thought, which wasn't a thought that you were planning to have, or contrary to your thoughts, it's probably the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you get a flyer in the mail, and, and it shows... Somebody needs money for something, I don't know, Compassion International or Samaritan's Purse or whatever it is, and, and you're just going to throw it away, and then all of a sudden you have a check in your spirit. You go, I think I'm supposed to look at this. I wonder if I should write a check. And your flesh goes, no, just throw it away. Boom. That might have been the Holy Spirit. It probably was the Holy Spirit speaking to you about something you weren't planning to do. Stop and call that person. If you've been thinking about calling somebody and someone says, you should really call them. So today, after nine months, I finally called them. <laughs> you know, and I think that was the Holy Spirit. Call them, call them. I don't know it was nine months, but you know, I hadn't talked to them. I thought, I need to call these people in our church. So that's the Holy Spirit. So as we study the scriptures, it's important that we are saved and we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us. Okay, now we're going to come to what I find to be one of the most exciting things for me to teach you that I enjoy teaching. It was in the first class I ever taught, I mean, I ever took in seminary, and it was taught by the president of the seminary to every incoming student because it's so important. And you'll look on your, your paper there. You have a diagram of circles, kind of like a target on the side, and we're going to talk about that, five circles. And you want to basically hit this target when you're doing Bible interpretation. And the first thing you want to start with Number one, if you look at your notes, examine the individual words. Hey, I could have looked up there. The answer's up there. <laughs> examine the individual words. The strength of any brick building is, is as strong as the bricks that make it up. And if you don't understand the words of a verse, you don't understand the verse. And a lot of times we read over a passage of Scripture quickly, and we don't take time to understand the words. And I'm going to give you some examples of how words are extremely important. You need to understand them. And that's why I often will tell you, well, the Greek word says this, and I'm going to say that tonight. Because if, unless you understand the words that make up the verse, you don't understand the verse. Because sentences are made up of words. And paragraphs are made up of sentences. And whole chapters are made of, you know, it goes like that. So we need to understand the words. So the first passage we want to look at tonight is John 15, 2. And if you have your Bibles and can look and write at the same time, it will be helpful. I'll turn as slowly as I can. Give you time to turn to John 15, 2. Jesus is speaking here. And... I'll pick it up in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Okay? Um, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that's the phrase we're going to look at, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Now, I'm wondering, does someone have a, a different translation that, that words this differently? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he... And mine says takes away. Does someone have a different translation there? We could shout out. Cuts off. Okay, cuts off. So that sounds pretty permanent, doesn't it? And so some people read this verse and say, this is an example of a verse that teaches you can lose your salvation. That you did not bear fruit as a Christian, so you lose your salvation. He cuts you off. And you read that and go, yeah, it sure sounds like that. You know, you've been cut off. And so they'll use this verse. Now, when we get to soteriology, which is a study of salvation, I'll show you how the Scripture teaches quite clearly that you can't lose your salvation. If you think you can lose your salvation, then you have a very different definition of salvation than the Bible teaches. And I'll show you that. You understand the words. 
from what's taught. But, okay, so if this verse doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, what does it mean? Well, it's important to know um, that word. Now, here's where the Greek comes in handy, and you say, well, I don't know the Greek. Well, you can study Greek without knowing Greek. Uh, if you have a concordance, New American Standard Concordance, or a King James Concordance, these, that's a big book that has all the words in it. In the back is a dictionary, and you can look up the word, and it'll have a number by it, and it'll tell you what Greek word and the definition of that Greek word, and you can look up every word in your English Bible and find out what Greek word represents it and, or what Greek word it comes from. And there are study Bibles you can get from Spiros Zodiatis, and he has a Bible that's in English, but it has the numbers, and you look it up in the dictionary, and you can find out what Greek word is. So there are many ways to do this. There's also what's called a Greek interlinear. And that's the English Bible with the Greek words underneath it, both written in Anglicide letters and Greek letters, if you want to learn Greek. So you can learn this. But words are important. Well, in John 15.2, we had, my version says, lift up. And another version said, cut off. Well, the Greek word there, is this Greek word, iro, which you would spell A-I-R-O, iro, A-I-R-O, iro. And if you look up that Greek word in the Greek lexicon or Greek dictionary, you'll find it has two main translations. One is lift up or cut off, but the other one I mean, oh, I wrote that wrong. Mine said, take away. Sorry, I, I did that wrong. I gave the answer away. <laughs> the other way is lift up. It can be translated lift up. And you go, wait a minute, that's totally different than take away or cut off. Yep, totally different. Well, how do you know which one it is? Context, only way you can know. Well, but you also have to understand and this is going to be number five on our list there, which has to do with historical and cultural understandings. But in America, when you see a grapevine growing, it normally grows vertically. Ever seen a grapevine grow in Middle East or Greece? It grows horizontally. So they let it run like that. And so... Back then, the idea was a grapevine would be growing horizontally on the ground. And if you got a bunch of grapes on it, and those grapes are getting in the dirt and the mud, they need to be lifted up. So they go and put a rock under it and lift the fruit up. So it would continue to bear fruit. And so it's not that he's cutting off the branches. He's lifting them up so they can bear fruit, because they're not going to bear fruit if they're on the ground in the muck and all that way. So if you understand how the vines work back then, you know, we have them growing vertically on trellises, but they have them growing horizontally, this word makes more sense. It also makes more sense if you look at other scriptures, and other scriptures tell you you can't lose your salvation. You go, well, this makes more sense, that he wants to encourage me if I'm not bearing fruit. He wants me to bear fruit. And if I am bearing fruit, he says, good job, and he helps me bear more fruit. But he's not going to come in and go, oh, man, you're not the best Christian. You're out of here. We only want the best, you know? I mean, just think what the church would look like if we only took the best. Only you would be here, you know? <laughs> yeah, so that's where words are important. Or let me give you even a, a more favorite one because it's even more controversial. Um, and that's in 1 Timothy 2.12. I guess I don't need to write it on there because it's on the screen. 1 Timothy 2.12. And I gave a whole sermon on this, so I won't take the time to do that. I will just take the time to show you why words are important. But in 1 Timothy 2.12, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of a church in Ephesus, and he's giving him instructions on pastoring. And he tells Timothy, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This is the main passage in all the scripture that people use that say that women shouldn't teach men. And it's a passage that I used and believed until someone had me look at the words in the Greek. And then it's like, oh. And what we discovered is that phrase, exercise 
authority comes from one Greek word. Okay? And I'm going to show I spell it right. So I have to write it in Greek first, and then I'll put it in English. Okay, so it's this Greek word, often which is spelled A-U-T-H-E-N-T-E-I-N. A-U-T-H-E-N-T-E-I-N. You get also a lot like our word authentic. Well, it does. Our word authentic comes from this word. But don't think about authentic. Think about authentine. This is the only place in the entire Bible this word appears. The only place. Uh, our th theologians call that a hapax legomena, and hapax legomena are words that are only used once in Scripture. It's just a fancy term. And it's one of those words only used at one time. Well, what does that mean? It means you don't know what it means. You have no idea what that word means from the Bible because it's only used that one time in the Bible. Does that make sense? So you can't understand it from the Bible. You have to find out what that word meant in Paul's day in secular writing because it's only used once in the Bible. You can't go to other verses in the Bible and go, oh, this word must mean this. You can't. So you read the Greek Bible. This shows up for the very first time. You go, I wonder what that word means. I've never seen it before. It's not in any other place in the Bible. You have to go to secular Greek to find out what this word means. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you, you can't know what it means. It just showed up. So here's where there's a discussion, I'll say. I don't know if there's a difference of opinion because the facts are the facts. Um, but people interpret the facts differently. This word in secular Greek prior to Paul's day, okay, it's hard to find during Paul's day, but prior to Paul's day meant, and this is a quote from the dictionary because I wrote it down, one who with his own hand kills himself or another. One who with his own hand kills himself or another. It was how it was used in secular Greek prior to Paul. Now, later on in Greek, the word mellowed out, and it meant someone who usurps authority by force. It didn't always mean murder. The noun form of that does mean murder. It means murderer, the noun form. Okay? So, it means much more than authority, and that's why in the King James Version, when they translated this, they translated it not exercise authority, they translated it, anybody know how? Correct. Someone online said it. <laughs> Usurp authority. Usurp authority. So, however you want to apply this verse, it's not your normal passage to say women can't have authority over men. It's not saying that. It sounds like it's saying... They can't force their way to take authority over men. Now, there's some other things with teaching and all that in this verse we can look at, but we're not going to do that tonight. But I just want to show you, understanding a word is extremely important because I had a totally different interpretation of this verse based on what I thought it said there, exercise authority. And then when someone was a Greek scholar, showed me that in the book, and I read it, and then I looked it up, and I've looked it up in numerous, numerous books. All the books in my library will authenticate the same thing. They don't disagree. They all say that word is an unusual word, only occurs once in historical Greek, classical Greek. It has the idea of usurping authority, taking authority by force, even to murder someone. Very strong word. So words are important. So as you study the scriptures, sometimes it's better, especially in the New Testament, where we have very specific teaching using specific words. The Old Testament is more broad, it's more narrative, but the New Testament words are extremely important, and that's why it's in the Greek, because the Greek is very specific. And you should look up at different English translations. Uh, there are different study Bibles. The, the Blue Letter Study Bible is a, an app you can get, Blue Letter Study Bible. It can show you the Greek. You don't have to know Greek. You can click on the English word. It'll tell you the Greek word. It'll tell you the definitions. The Blue Letter Study Bible. I found that really helpful. It's really quick. I don't, I don't have to pick out all the books out of my library to see it. But individual words make up the sentences. And if you want to understand them, you need to understand the words. So the second thing you need to understand, number two there is you need to understand not just the words, but the immediate context. 
media context. So you start with the center here, and we're moving out to number two, to, not if we're good, two, to immediate context. Often what people will do, and cults will do this, they'll pull a verse out of its context, and you just read that verse. And so if you said, Pastor Perry said, quote, he hates women, you go, whoa. Well, there's no context there. But maybe the context is, Pastor Perry said he heard a man at the store yelling, he hates women. You know, that's the context. I didn't say it. Someone else said it, or whatever it is. Does that make sense? None of us want our words taken out of context. None of us. So we should not take God's word out of context. I think it'll hold us accountable for that. So you want to look at the immediate context. Let me show you a favorite passage that perhaps everyone in this room has either used out of context or heard someone use out of context. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. I used it out of context. You hear it all the time out of context. So let's find out the right context. And the beautiful things about these, uh, these rules that we're looking at, once you hear them, you go, well, that's not Perry's opinion. That has to be true, right? Like with words. You can't say, well, words aren't important. Well, of course they're important. And you can't say, well, media context isn't important. Well, you could say it, but it doesn't make much sense. Um, so you examine the media context. Uh, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. So in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus speaking, he says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. How many of you have heard this verse used in some context, in somewhere? And how many of you heard it used in a prayer meeting or in terms of prayer? Generally, that's how it's used, that we say, and I remember when I was in college, I was bringing my college friend who was not a believer at that time to our college group. And someone said, Lord, there's more than two or three here gathered, so we know you're here with us answering our prayer. And he was an unbeliever, and he looked at me and goes, well, what if there's only one of you? Doesn't he hear your prayer? And that was very insightful. You know, so we have this idea that if there's three, it's stronger than one. You might not hear us if there's one. So, hey, could you pray with me? Or if there's 12 of us praying, if there's 100 praying, now, there's some truth to more prayers, apparently. But that's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is not teaching that when you pray, you better have two or three, or the Lord's not going to hear your prayer. And we know that because of the context. So to find the context, we go to the beginning of the paragraph, and your Bible might have that marked as verse 15, or the beginning of a subject, uh, the the section. And my Bible has it starting with verse 15. And Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. So what's the subject? Reproving a sinning brother. That's right. That's the subject. It's not a prayer meeting. You're not saying when you're in a prayer meeting, make sure there's somebody else there with you. Okay. And if your brother sins, so it's a fellow Christian, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So this is a good way to deal with sin. When someone offends you or you see someone sinning, you don't first go to the pastor and go, hey, guess what I saw so-and-so doing? We better bring him before the church. No, you go to that person and say, hey, I saw this. It looked like you were doing this. That looks wrong. Is that what you're doing? And maybe they go, oh, no, no, I came out of the bar because uh, I went in there to do this. Or maybe you were in the bar, but you weren't doing anything wrong in the bar. Is it wrong to go in the bar? You know, so we judge people based on what we've seen. Find out what was going on first. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, notice, take one or two more with you. How many people is that? Two or three. If there's one of you and you get another person, that's two. So we got our two or three number. So he says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which was a law that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So he's talking basically about a legal case here. He's not talking about a prayer meeting. He's talking about the fact that God gives us authority to represent his word and to speak for him when there are two or three people. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Tax gatherer. Well, how do we treat a Gentile and a tax gatherer at church? You're not telling them they can't come to church. What he's saying is you treat him like he's acting like an unbeliever. And how do you treat an unbeliever at church? You don't let him teach Sunday school. You don't let them preach a sermon. And you don't let them participate in communion. And that's where we get the phrase excommunicate. No communion. So when you excommunicate someone, the idea was it's not that you're throwing them out of church because they sinned. Otherwise, none of us would be here. He's saying if you're in willful sin... You don't let them take communion because communion is for those who are repentant. It's not for those who are sinless. Now, the whole point is that we've sinned. <laughs> but it's for those who are repentant of their sin. And if they're not repentant, you know, don't have them take communion. Excommunicate them. So the whole context is a sinning brother. And then he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, the idea there, he says, I've given you authority to tell the person they're still bound in their sin. And I've given you the authority to tell the person they've been loose from their sin. I'm giving you the authority, two or three witnesses, to do my work on earth, and heaven is behind you. And if they don't repent, tell them you're still bound up in your sin. If they do repent, you can say, you know, you're forgiven. God forgives you. And then he says, again. Well, what does again mean? It's a word. I'm saying the same thing I just said. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that he may ask, it will be done for him by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three have been gathered, not for prayer, but for church discipline, in my name that I am in their midst. He's giving us authority as Christians to deal with fellow sinners in the church and he says, you have my authority to say they're still bound up in their sin. They're not forgiven. And you have my authority to say, you are forgiven. When someone says, who are you to judge? You go, well, I'm the person that Jesus sent, <laughs> along with so-and-so and so-and-so. Does that make sense? So the context is not a prayer meeting. The context is church discipline of a sinning brother. So you might find another verse that tells us we should have multiple people in prayer. That's not this verse. So if you want to use that verse, this verse that way, you're not using it the way that God spoke it. Does that make sense? And so he wants us not to take his words out of context. Okay, so we have words. We examine the individual words. That's important. We have the immediate context. And the last one we're going to look at tonight is you need to examine the book context. The book context. And by book, we mean the individual biblical book, whether it's 1 Corinthians or Matthew or Isaiah. You need to understand the context of the book, who it was written to in that context. And each one of these things gets broader and broader. So let me give you an example. I like to joke and say that Ecclesiastes 10.19 is my life verse, okay? It really isn't, but let's see what Ecclesiastes 10.19 says. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says, Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. So let me ask you, does the Bible say money is the answer to everything? Yes, the Bible says it. It's right there. And so if I was a cult leader, I might say, well, the Bible says money's the answer to everything. Let me show you. It's right there in the Bible. Do you believe the Bible's true? Well, yeah. Well, then shouldn't we believe this? And you go, well, no. And I go, well, why not? It's in the Bible. I think you said the Bible's true. And you go, well, well, pastor, what am I supposed to do? And so you go, wait, I remember. You're supposed to look at the words. And you look up the word, and in Hebrew, money means money. Oh, no. And then you look up the word answer, and it means answer, and everything means everything. And you go, that doesn't help. Okay? And uh, so then you look at the immediate context, and you go, okay, um, 
I need to look at the words, the verses before and after it. So you go, verse 18 says, through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. You go, well, that doesn't help. Maybe verse 20 will help. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and a winged creature will make the matter known. You go, great, I have no idea what that means either. So none of that helps. You go, faster, you know. So, no, you don't have to call me yet. Then you remember, wait, we have to look at the book context. Now, this is where you have to know some stuff. And if you don't know it, you find someone who does, like a study Bible or a Bible commentary or a Bible handbook or something like that. You have to understand who the book of Ecclesiastes was written to and what's it all about. Well, when you do your study, or you call me and I tell you, <laughs> you discover the book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 1 who wrote it. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So it's David's son. And we will discover as we read that it's, it's, it's clearly his son Solomon, who was the wisest and richest king of Israel. And notice this preacher. He calls himself a preacher, and that's why the book is called the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. Um, ecclesia is a Greek word for church. And so Ecclesiastes just comes from the word for church in Greek, and he's called a preacher, so he's a preacher in the church. And the preacher in the church says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now go home. We're done. This is it. You know, church is over. It's like, well, no, but that's what he says. And so as you read the book, you discover that Solomon wrote at least three books that we know of. He wrote the Song of Solomon when he was kind of a young man with a lot of testosterone. and It's about being in love and kind of a racy book in the Hebrew. And then he wrote the book of a Proverbs when he was an older, mature, wise man. And then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes when he was old and he hadn't finished well. And he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, or is it the other way around? But I guess it doesn't really matter. There are a lot of women in his life, and he followed his pagan women into idolatry and left the Lord. So he wasn't walking with God. And when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he's summing up his life. And he goes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he started writing a book that's based on the philosophy of man without God. And not all of man's philosophy is wrong. Not all man's philosophy is bad. But ultimately, it's empty. And so he tells us, he started following man's philosophy. And in chapter 1, verse 18... He says in verse 18, because in much wisdom, there's much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. He goes, I got smarter and smarter and smarter, and it didn't help. Just turn on the news. Does that help? No, it doesn't help. So I like chapter 2, verse 1. He says, to my, he says to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. So he became a hedonist. Scholarship didn't make him feel any better. So then he goes, I'll just give myself everything I wanted. Verse 10 of chapter 2. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there is no profit under the sun. He said it was all empty. So he writes this whole book with man's philosophy. Some things are, are good, some things are empty, so, but they're all about his pursuit. And then you get to the end of the book. Oh, and in chapter 10, verse 19, he lived with wine, making his life merry, and believing money was the answer to everything. But then he gets to chapter 12, and here's the conclusion. When he looks at his empty life, chapter 12, verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13 says the conclusion. When all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Because God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And so his conclusion is, I should have listened to God. Because when I listened to man, and I listened to my flesh, it was all vanity. And money being the answer to everything is vanity, is empty. But you have to know the context of the book to understand that 
verse. Okay? So I see that my time is up, so we're gonna we're gonna stop there. And next week we'll continue and, and finish up this section on hermeneutics. So let me pray and then we can say goodbye to our listeners. And if you have questions, you can give them to me then. Let's pray. Lord, again, we want to thank you for your word. And pray, Lord, you'd bring to mind the things that we've studied that would be helpful so that we can study your word and understand it better and know you better. Lord, may you give each one here a restful night's sleep, I pray. May they awake refreshed tomorrow. And may you continue to bless us as individuals, bless our homes, our families, and our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.